Welcome back everyone to another episode of Cast Fortier Witcher, where in this episode we will discuss episode 3 of season 1 of the TV series. Dov, Erin and Magnus are all back here again, uh, but this time we also have a special guest. Fiona, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Fiona Robertson. I am an equalities convener, but mainly I'm a disability activist. I have been disabled for 20 years and I have a lot to say. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, shall we say, provocative episode, so that's... It is. Uh, right, shall we just get into it? Yeah. Uh, so, as saying, the episode starts with the gentleman in a bit of a bad way, um, <laughs> describing some sort of cur- curse and choking on his own blood and dying and generally having a bad time. Yeah, I love this intro. It is such a great, like, horror film intro. It's so chilling with that, like, long, slow shot on the boy's face as he's explaining what's happened to him, but in this, like, cryptic way where he's talking about curses and a wolf walking over the grave of a pregnant girl who died before her time. And it's, I just, I love this shot. It's it's great and um, really sort of pulls you into what's happening with the episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's a very uh, kind of what's the word? Noir. Yeah, noir is probably the right word actually. Like uh, way to way to start this episode, and uh, I do like that. Um, as soon as a Witcher is mentioned, we're expecting it to be our old friend Geralt, but then it turns mm-hmm. out to be this random guy who we've never seen before. Yes, I think this is the first time we see a Witcher who isn't Geralt. Yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously turns into a kind of red shirt scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he very quickly eats it. Black hair and beard <laughs> is the red red shirtness of the Witcher world. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well. You can't see his medallion, so you don't know what school he's from. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is something I'm not really familiar with because I haven't played the games. And while the book sort of mentions different um, different medallions... It doesn't really explain what yeah, they mean. Yeah, uh, like the, the 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 books establish, shall we say, very very little about the about the other Witcher schools. Mostly, in exactly one seed, it establishes that others exist by virtue of medallions with different animal heads than wolf. Yeah, it's the griffin and the cat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in the games you have the viper. And yeah, the games the games add a whole bunch of them because that that's actually one of the things I do like like about the game's contribution to the lore that they actually fleshed out the witcher schools a bit mm-hmm. um with like uh basically just adding i think a total of another three of them besides for the ones that are already established in the books mm-hmm. the cats the cat school um has infamy in in the games because uh, they became assassins and mercenaries and that's one of the reasons why people hated them and didn't trust them and that kind of thing is associated with them and i think the bear school was the one in Skellige. And that they are makes sense, being... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so we see this other this other witcher, um, and he sort of takes the, the payment from the, the father of the boy, and just, like, just if they wanted to rub in just how horrible what's happening here is, it's when the father turns to pay the witcher that the boy dies while his father's just for a moment not looking at him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like just like rubbing your face in how horrible this is, and then um, 
yeah, as we said very quickly, the other Witcher is in over his head. I really loved this shot as well, actually. The very classic horror movie um, yeah, setting the, of, of fighting a meat locker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, it's, it's worth noting that the guy, the other Witcher, has the black eyes that we see from the cat potion. So you can see in the dark, wandering around amongst these hunks of meat. Yeah, I didn't even notice that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Because we haven't gotten to elixirs yet, right? This is the first episode that we actually see them in. Um, yeah, you, you see some of them, yeah, but I don't think they're ever really discussed. You see, it, you see it. I think in the very, very beginning, where Geralt's fighting the Kikimora, that like he has the plain black eye. Yes, that's right. But he doesn't. We don't see him take an elixir. We see him take one this episode. Yeah, yeah. Because that's like half the thing that. about witches is that they can drink magic potions and digest them because they're full of poisons to normal people that's where the trial of grasses and all that is about well, but that's, it's literally that's like established down. that one of the fucking ingredients is belladonna which you know in the real world is like super <laughs> fucking famous po- poison yeah and then as i describe in my notes we see a female screaming boobiest and the dude gets fucking iced yes. he just thoroughly gets cut he off does get iced uh, in the midst of like tons of other meats yeah i think that's interesting because it both sets up that like there's actually plenty of food around and she is not interested in it and also that You're right. um, yeah. he dies so fast like he is no match for this thing You're right actually yeah yeah um he, he dies literally surrounded by food <laughs> surrounded by food it's like it's chimes with what like is later said in the episode that striggers are very picky eaters and they're driven mm-hmm. by rage and terror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the scene quite abruptly cuts to um, Geralt um, in an inn, and he's doing much better than he was in the last episode. So we left him in pretty rough shape. Um, looked like he hadn't been doing well. His armor was wrecked. His hair looked bad. He looked like he has been having a rough time, and he was constantly broke. Uh, so whatever um, Gaskier did to improve his reputation has clearly worked, because he's got not just a room in an inn, but a quite fancy one with a a fire and a seating area and wine and a very nice bed and a paid-for companion. Yeah, I think the, the companion is probably the best evidence of uh, lifestyle and <laughs> disposable income. <laughs> yes. Um, I think this is our first sort of could be said to be Game of Thronesy sex position scene in this yeah. uh, show. <laughs> I will s- I will say, you know what, I'm actually not going to complain about this as much as I think people expect me to be like, oh, and she's topless for no reason. I think one thing about this show and that continues to sort of, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt of because it does a pretty good job of this throughout, is the camera kind of loves both of them. Like, this whole thing where she's looking at his scars and singing all of Yaskir's songs about them is clearly an excuse for the camera to, like, pan all over his sweaty, mostly naked body. So I think it's fairly equal opportunity here. <laughs> and there is the bath scene, oh. which is, for some reason... That, oh, we will, you know... we will get to both of the bath scenes. Objectify everyone. Woohoo! Of course there's multiple, aren't there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there's even more of them in the in the books but so it's not even like they invented that for the show he's in a bath all the time in the books there's a bath orgy in the books so (laughs) yeah yeah that sounds really unsafe (laughs) it's not sanitary at all (laughs) yeah um so she's sort of singing all of yaskir's songs uh while sort of tracing all of his scars but then gets to the scar on his thigh that uh run free inflicted on him 
and his demeanor just like immediately changes. So I actually love that Renfrey continues to be like an important part of his life, even to the point that like being reminded of that scar can like completely change his demeanor. And then he goes kind of cold on her with like just not wanting to share any details, um, trying to like flippantly sort of play off. Names all sound the same. I don't remember who it was, but you can see he's clearly not happy to be asked about Renfrey. Yeah, that's a good point, I think. I would love for there to be some kind of investigation into how things like trauma uh, are, is dealt with for heroes, because heroes are supposed to not... Um, they, they have very weird responses to trauma. And for someone who is spends his all of his life and he was created by going through a traumatic event or a series of events, then, you know, why why this one thing is the thing that causes a trauma response in him? It's, yeah, it's yeah, an yeah, interesting... Um, and I, think, um, I think I might sort of maybe know the answer. Uh, and, like, or just, like, I have a theory. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's just the fact that, like, Renfrey was pretty much the first human that, like, out of the path actually treated him like a human being in the sense of didn't precede every conversation with I heard that you witchers can't feel anything and, and he, it was it was the first time that he was uh, yeah. actually shown I think humanity in the proper full-blown sense mm-hmm. of and we talked about this I think quite a lot in episode one that mm-hmm. she's so much like him as well that they're both sort of people on the fringes of society because of um mutations or abilities that aren't their fault and um they had this moment of connection and then he makes a choice that he'll never know was right or not and and kills her this one sort of person who understood him and treated him yeah with humanity yeah yeah i think that's that's basically it like that literally he had developed trauma from this because she actually like a little bit cared about him because he wasn't approaching her as a monster, and as yeah, there was a he wasn't approaching her as a monster, yeah. and she wasn't approaching and he was him as, as an a equal. Monster. Really, they saw each other's the other side of each other, mm-hmm. and then she manages yeah. to box him into this corner where he yeah. has to make a terrible choice yeah. anyway. And living with that is a uh, living yeah. with choices like that is mm-hmm. impossible for the best of people. Yeah. So well, this, I think this has been one of the major themes that we've talked about through this. Is it's. I think um, Aaron raised it, is it's the effect of, you know, super hyper-masculinity on, you know, on people, on people even who are supposedly heroes and super strong and valiant warriors. It shows the sort of collateral that it actually has, and it feels very human with Geralt. Like, all of his responses are entirely ra- rational in some sense. Like, when we talk about the, the genesis of Witchers, and they're talking about how they're mutants and they're unemotional. It's yeah. like, sounds like he's just had a really traumatic upbringing and is pretty closed in. Like mm-hmm. any witcher would be, given that most of them are kidnapped as children and gone through, you know, military training from the age of children with <laughs> no, you know, female figures in their life till they grow up. No wonder they grow up to be these stoic, traumatized people. That has a really interesting parallel to um, the way that we treat. Uh, certain conditions in in childhood now like we mm-hmm. one of the thing one of the most common things that people say about autistic people is that they lack empathy and that's not true at all it's um it's it's only true because it's only true from a neurotypical person's um perspective yeah, exactly, because exactly. the empathy doesn't look like what we expect empathy to be and 
Um, and when, especially when you have an autistic child who has been, um, who, I mean, largely been traumatized, been pushed into boxes or treated as other, then the set of uh, coping protocols that you develop um, do often look like uh, withdrawing or detachment, where really, you know, there, there are these very deep feelings. They just don't, um, they're not expressed in a way that neurotypical people instinctively understand. And uh, our insistence that it's still, like we're st people are still saying that it's a lack of empathy is really disturbing. It's a different emotional vocabulary, I think. Yeah, exactly. There's an, there's an amazing scene in The Imitation Game. Like I had a lot of issues with the film itself, but the, there's this fantastic scene where um, he is saying to his childhood friend that he, you know, he has all these feelings, but he just, it, the, the language yeah. he speaks is, is clearly not the language other people speak, and he doesn't know how to translate and it. And I think you're very right in that, like, there's a clear parallel here, uh, in the sense that Geralt also clearly has a shitload of emotions. He's just literally never been allowed to express them. Yeah. Because society expects witchers to be cold and emotionless, otherwise, you know, the task that's yeah. been given on them, given to them, is like you know just unbearable yeah. for a normal human being. Well, yeah. they live for hundreds of years, and all they do is go from town yeah. to town killing things. <laughs> for all the hatred that society throws at them, that is also what society expects them to do and created them to do. Um, so speaking so, of going yeah, to town exactly. town, killing things, uh, after he's cooled on his uh, companion, he's suddenly interested in her again when he realizes she's talking about another witcher who came through and went to Temeria. And while they're trying to have a conversation about, um, you know, what is going on in Temeria, uh, the landlord um, starts trying to knock the door down because Geralt's been there for three days and hasn't paid yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's paid for the... <laughs> for the lady's company but not for his accommodation <laughs> <laughs> yes he seems to think that the room came with the company and it did not i would say that's that's some a strange form of practice well. not paying the landlord but <laughs> yeah, pay the worker not the <laughs> landlord <laughs> absolutely pay, the, yeah, pay the sex worker fuck the landlord oh no that's the wrong way around <laughs> like it, it is there is an interesting thing here um like, correct me if, if I'm misremembering this, but um, he starts really paying attention to what she's saying, like, when basically she mentions that something is going on in Temeria and that the other Yeah, and he starts paying attention to her again when she says, yeah, a friend of yours came through here, and then he says, friend, and then, yeah, and she says another witcher. There's a line, have... Shouldn't you know yeah. when someone's Yeah, another one of Geralt's yeah. classic <laughs> terrible jokes. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, yeah, um, yes, like, and and I think that was that was interesting because like I don't think they ever like quite exactly explain why he was curious what this other witcher was well, doing. I think you'd just be curious that like oh another witcher came through, so there must be something going on. More a case of like he literally jumps up, you know, like his body language was like mm -hmm. he started listening to the conversation at that point. It it almost feels like there was there was there was a mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, th there was something cut there like where like maybe like it had been mentioned that like Geralt actually like this guy's name was mentioned that Geralt actually knew the guy or something like that just because it, it it was the sort of reaction that you have when genuinely a friend has passed through town and you're like oh yeah I know him 
I wonder if he was expecting that it wasn't another witcher and she because she's not a friend of yours first and that's when he starts paying attention I wonder if he was right. wondering if it was Yaskir because oh, she was singing point. all of Yaskir's Possibly, songs. Possibly, but uh, th- then, then, like, he did... Uh, <laughs> like, mm. as a follow-up to, like, learning that it, there was a witcher there, he was he was suddenly very inexplicably interested in what was going on in Tenerife. Did she tell him right away that he took the miner's coin and ran? He did. She did, didn't she? Yeah, of that's course. why. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That'll be a like, yeah, guild I mean, honor. It makes sense because, yeah. like, that sort of thing, you know, like... Uh, this is this is the sort of thing where like you know medieval craftsmen like of any sort when they were joined into a guild if like one of them violated the terms of the contract that's reflected badly on the entire guild. Uh, so so from his perspective as a small businessman, mm-hmm. yep. Geralt is on Capra's business, <laughs> ensuring that like it continues <laughs> to be open to him going forward. So then he um, packs off and. The one thing I say is funny is it yeah, says yeah. Um, point you to Temeria. It's, it's it just like this horse that always cracks me up because it's like, it's like point An entire you. country. <laughs> <laughs> also, the idea that he doesn't know where Temeria is when, like, this is all he like, does. That, is... that one is almost, almost yeah. maybe believable yeah. if he doesn't have a map on hand. But, like, but still. And we've I been there for so. three years just frolicking. <laughs> and poor Roach gets left behind because he's collab- <laughs> she's collateral for uh, his unpaid room bill. Yeah, and then we strike to we cut to some workers talking about unionizing and rising up and going on strike. You know who this who this reminded me of? Um, how many of you? Uh, I know Aaron, you haven't, but feel that Magnus have you seen Chernobyl? Yes. I have not. Um, Fiona, did they not remind you of the miners in Chernobyl, where like yes, <laughs> like just like this this uh, gang of it like, genuinely you know, did like, yes uh, hard workers who like literally will buy for no one. <laughs> the scenes are really interesting, actually, because it gives us a lot of context about things that are going on um, in the world, and it also um, gives us sort of some ideas about how those global or continent-wide events are sort of impacting. Um, sort of workers throughout the continent. So when Geralt walks into the mines wearing his shiny new armor, may I add, um, the workers are talking about going into revolt due to the way that King Foltest isn't doing anything about this monster. Um, and they talk about two different th- a few different things. They talk about we should go on strike um, or we should pack up and move and go south of Sodden, so go to Nilfgaard, um because they've had a revolution and are taking care of their workers now and then their third option which is the what the father of the dead boy proposes is um we can't just go to Nilfgaard they've had this usurper and now all of their workers get paid we should do the same as them well um, against th- there isn't that much coverage of Nilfgaard because um like only the last guy mentions Nilfgaard um the the, the second guy says south South of Sodom at this point doesn't still mean Nilfgaard. Um, at this point, the Nilfgaardian conquest hadn't started yet. Um, like it, 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 he just says that there are jobs. Oh, south that's of true. Sodom. You're right. Um, like so, I think it's more just generically he's proposing that as a solution rather than go on strike. Let's just leave. And then the last guy goes, "We should do what the usurper did in Nilfgaard and get rid of the king." Yeah. Geralt yes. is literally like, you can't kill a Wukudlak, but you're going to kill Geralt your king. Geralt walks in and is not on board with revolution. <laughs> yeah, sure, guys. <laughs> this is, I think this, I, he, he comes up with the like, you know, he talks of my guild and yours, which is, I think, 
calling back to the fact that it's professional pride at this point. Yes, he says, I'll do it. I take payment uh, after the fact and for a third of the price, uh, a compensation for my guild to yours. And so just as he's sort of talking to the miners, the Temerian army turns up with uh, Lord Ostrand. And immediately tries to hoy Geralt out the country. Um, You've had enough of witchers. Seemingly counterintuitively. Yes. Yes, yeah, they've got an option of someone who's willing to take payment after the job's done and to um, do it on the cheap, and they're still kicking yeah. out. And to quell a revolution yeah. in the works, like, he's totally not useful to no, a random king. Kick him out. <laughs> and, you know, as we eventually find out, that was entirely in line with Ostrid's plans. Like, I think it's actually very interesting, um, like, yes. to look at this scene from the perspective of, like, after you've watched the entire episode. Because, like, initially when you're watching it, you just go, like, Oh yeah, Ostrid just looks like, you know, he's just mm-hmm. trying to be nice, calm the workers down, like doesn't even punish them because he just wants them to be, you know, this guy probably isn't so bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's trying to just maintain order. Uh, like, and then mm-hmm. when you watch it at the end of the entire episode, like after having watched the episode at least once, you go, oh shit, <laughs> like the real cynicism of the guy is fully on display here. Because yeah, yeah the big yeah, opening is treasonous. Yeah, and it's and like the way he speaks to them like reads completely differently. Like like his like niceness reads as a combination mm-hmm. of I'm going to not punish you just so you can continue fomenting like revolt and like also it starts sounding so patronizing, like he like when he says that like um like, you know, to the dead boy's father, that, like, he was a good lad. Um, you know, I understand your pain. Um, like, it, it starts sounding like upper-class patronization, you know, like, um, as if he's trying to provoke them deliberately into more anger, like, by saying things like that. Mm-hmm. So, as he's escorted to the border, um, the soldiers who are escorting him suddenly slump off of their horses and we are introduced to Triss. We don't know much about her so keep your opinions to yourselves at this stage. Full disclosure everybody, <laughs> we don't really like Triss on this podcast except Show Triss. Show Triss is kind Look, of... Look, I can see Show Triss as a different person. She's a different person and I can accept that. We've got big problems with what Rob does Tris and become Game very obvious, um, like from this scene, is that Geralt does not like sorcerers. Like once again, <laughs> like because because he insists on calling her a witch, and like like he he literally says that, like something along the lines of like, well, I didn't expect a witch to appear, and she goes sorceress, and he goes witch. <laughs> like it's actually one of the more like. <laughs> Um, how do you put this, like, uh, childishly obtuse moments that Geralt does in the TV series, which I kind of like. Um, so it turns out she's a mage who serves uh, King Foltest, and she wants Geralt to come to the castle and save the, the monster and not kill it. Um, he's a bit suspicious of this, but... like I like how, like, actually this scene, like, um, the way it's been done it subverts expectations a little bit because like uh, Geralt initially when she says that um, uh, she would like him to return to the castle with her and like solve this goes 
ah, typical, this is another case of the king makes a show of mm-hmm. kicking me out, but then sends an errand girl to uh, bring me back. Like, this, you know, yeah. this sort of thing that, like, <laughs> has happened before, because frequently, you know, I, I can imagine various situations where a king doesn't want to be upfront about mm-hmm. the fact that they're hiring a witcher. Uh, like, and, and yeah. then, like, it's actually subverted, because Triz goes, no, mm-hmm. actually, the king knows nothing about this. My plan, my coin. And, and I think that's just interesting. It's like a, it, 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 it toys with the viewer's expectations as well. Yeah. So she explains that citizens have been going missing for years and that Foltest has fled the original castle and built a new one. And when Geralt says, well, he can't help because he can't cure a Vuka Black, which is what they think it is, Triss says it definitely isn't a Vuka Black, uh, but we're not sure what it actually is. Um, should we explain what a Vuka Black is? That's basically just Polish for a werewolf. It's it's oh, literally Polish for a werewolf. That's cool. Yeah. Like I I I could tell because it's very close to the Lithuanian Volkolic. Yeah, and then Geralt goes and examines the corpse and finds out that his pal had been butchered. He hadn't fled and nibble at his liver and heart. Yes, which he's not impressed that she's decided it's okay to just let the people believe that he fled because they didn't want to cause panic by letting them know that the monster had been able to kill a witcher. And that's when Geralt identifies that it's a Striga, because, as he says, only one creature he knows is that picky and eater. Yes. Uh, This is also where Triss explains that um, it's not just any old monster, that it is... Possibly the heir to the throne. It is yes. the king's yes. sister, Ada's daughter. The first episode when he's talking to um, the little girl when he t- mentions a striga, because of course striga is not it's not Western folklore thing, um, mm-hmm. but it's the name we hear when he's talking with uh, I forget her name, the wee lass, and yeah, Marilka. Marilka. Um and she mentions a striga, and now we're actually seeing oh this is actually a thing in the world. Um, which I think is a little cool. bit ninety nine percent sure that the reason they mentioned like Astruga in the first episode was because after producing most of the series they were like eh, we need to insert a line just like mentions a couple of the monsters who have we got Astruga fantastic <laughs> <laughs> so um, Strigas are produced by a curse um, and so that means a curse can be broken so that is <laughs> the plan then you get the uh... um, the, the, the shagging scene of the episode or the, or the second sort of <laughs> with the uh... um, you know what I actually kind of love this because it is so Yennefer it hurts like honestly <laughs> when when I started watching this scene I was like wait who are these people and I was like oh yeah of course they're illusions because Yennefer wants to be watched by a crowd that makes sense that, that completely makes sense Yes. So, um, yeah, so we get this um, kind of freaky sex scene where, yeah, Yennefer and Istrid are having sex in front of an illusory crowd that Yennefer has conjured, and uh, they applaud. Okay, so I, this is one of these things that I I think um, it could be read really easily as, as pure exhibitionism, but I think that one of the elements of the scene which was so important, and this is one of the things that they did right um, with disability, is that we, especially disabled women, are are completely desexualized. We are seen as completely not sexual beings, not attractive, not 
worth um, not like when I was uh, using a chair full time when my boyfriend would kiss me people would look horrified like genuinely horrified Um, so much to the point that I started wearing t-shirts that said I love sex just to fuck with people (laughs) 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 because (laughs) because we are it's it's a really well-known thing especially um which is which is particularly cruel given the fact that um disabled women are also vastly more likely to become um targets of sexual assault and rape uh but that's often mm-hmm. because we're not believed um when we say that this has happened because we are seen as non-sexual beings so uh, the scene was really amazing where you had this woman who she used her magic to conjure the stuff but she didn't change her appearance in this she was still her and it was um she was a a disabled woman having some pretty hot freaky sex with a pretty hot guy <laughs> and all of these people mm. watching and approving and lauding her for it that's something that we are completely is completely absent from the typical disabled woman's life it's a um and especially if you have the type of disability which Yennefer mm-hmm. has which is the um the facial disfigurement and the um the hunchback these are things which are seen as completely separately they are mutually exclusive from being attractive and so it was an amazing scene and it was really when i watched that i was really hopeful that they were going to do something amazing with her oh well (laughs) yeah i mean i really liked the scene as well because i mean this is book context but something that if you've read the books you know is jennifer is pretty kinky um, so are so, most disabled women um, I really like that they sort of extended that sort of back to her life before she has yeah. like the physical transformation and it's like no this is like who Yennefer is and who she's always been um, and like her relationship with Yist- with Istrid at this point is so like genuine and sexual and loving and I'm just yeah really happy that they they had that for her yeah I like that they um, that they show that her um, kinkiness and her love of sex is not bound to um, her sense of herself as a beautiful person. Um, it's not bound to her looks and it's not bound to the role that she will play um, in terms of, uh, you know, supposedly pleasing men. It's, a, it's something that she wants for herself. It gives her agency that, again, disabled women tend not to have in any kind of media. Um, but there is also really interesting um, mm-hmm. things that people are just beginning to do some research on into the fact that um, BDSM and, and kink is actually really overrepresented in um, in the disability community. Disabled women in particular are really fucking into kink. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so, I mean, this was a really, it, it was actually like incredible representation for the scene. It was on so many levels. So what we get sort of after they finish is, um, we can see that she's been at Eretuza for a while. Her hair's grown out. So she's clearly been there long enough for that to have happened. She's not in the novice uniform anymore. She's sort of in like a dress. 
Um, and she's already talking to Istrid and making plans about what they're going to do because they are both about to basically graduate. This is an interesting moment, by the way, because uh, like um, at the at about this moment of the episode, I was I I have to admit I was genuinely confused to what degree she and Istrid are genuinely into each other, like on a, in a romantic sense. Um, because we, well, we finished the last episode with finding out that both of them had manipulated each other into giving away information, sensitive information, um, to please their respective teachers in their respective wizarding schools. I think the degree to which they become like really heated and upset with each other when this all comes out later suggests real mutual affection on both sides and just that they're in this like impossible, difficult situation where their like entire future lives ride on. Yeah, I mean to some degree, I think I think you're right. Um, like when it comes to Istred, um, who in the previous episode, to be honest, didn't even seem especially comfortable with um, betraying. Yeah, he really tried to hold out. Yeah, like he literally, he literally like looks horrified at himself when he says to Stragobor that she's a quarter elf. Like, and I think to be totally honest. I, I would even argue that maybe it's possible that, like, Istred was trying to give a bit of information that, like, is as irrelevant as possible. Because, like, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it turns out Yeah, I don't to be think re- Istred really understood the consequences. Yeah, it turns out to be relevant in this episode, but, like, generally speaking, there's, there's, there's a question to be asked about whether, like, um, it would have damaged Yennefer in any other context than this, well, if that yeah, makes sense. The whole thing is that elf yeah. magic is tied to the elves, and you you know, there are elves, sorceresses everywhere and stuff like that. It wouldn't have harmed her career in any way, yeah. so to speak, that <laughs> she's part elf. Exactly, exactly. So, so I think so. I think Istred was literally trying to give away as little information as possible, and that was the only thing he could think of. Whereas Yennefer, mind you, like, this, this is just something i don't know if i'm like making sense at all right now but i think yennefer uh gave away shall we say a little bit more of a secret in terms of the fact that like she actually gave away to Tessaia information about like what istred is doing there sneaking into tall tor lara like so ever okay occasionally like you know it's it's not even the school that banard is thousands of miles mm-hmm. away he's the portal in mm-hmm. like um He's doing research that he's clearly keeping secret from Aratusa because using elven magic, yeah, exactly. Like, and you know, like we see this the first time they meet Istred and Yennefer, like that uh, Istred panics at the fact that um, Yennefer, like uh, Tissaia, will be coming for Yennefer. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, so, 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 whatever he's doing is clearly like, like at least he's trying to keep it a secret, um, and Yennefer. Not only, you know, like, um, basically tells Tissaia how he's doing it, like, the principal, like, you know, like, she she, she literally essentially gives her the, the fen of it that, like, he uses to generate those elf portals, like. At the same time, Tissaia clearly already knew, because Tissaia, what she Tissaia asked Yennefer clearly... to do was to get oh, it. She clearly... And so she had to know he was doing it for her to know to ask Yennefer she to get clearly, the flower. She clearly definitely so. did. Um, but, like, also, Yennefer was not even remotely regretful 
at that. She was smiling when she fulfilled that task in the second episode. That's true, but I think that's just who Yennefer is in a lot of I ways. Think, I think you, you're not wrong, but I think, like, to some degree, at the very least, like, the most charitable interpretation is that Yennefer didn't really feel that that was in any way a betrayal. And to be totally fair, neither does Istred, as we find out later on, when he basically reveals that he did know that she spied on him for... Yeah. He just, I think, regards this as, oh, this is sorcerer politics. It is what it is. Exactly. It's to do yeah, with and us. I think Istra genuinely like believes that and 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 stuff. But I think that at the very least, like, how do I put this? I I I am getting a little bit of a feeling of like callousness towards him from Yennefer, if that makes sense. Like, like mm. maybe she she clearly does feel affection towards him. Let Let's get to this later on when they argue. Yeah, let's yeah, put yeah. a pin in this yeah. one for when we get to that scene. Um, so they're discussing their court assignments, um, and she is going to be going to Adern, which she's uh, very pleased with because that is her sort of home kingdom. Um, and they're making plans for how to stay together once they have gotten their assignments. Um, you know, Istrid wants to do um, archaeological research, and Yennefer is going to be a court mage, and she's saying, oh, if I do well, I can talk the king into giving you access to our ruins. Um, and then this is where we get the idea of the enchantment come up, I think, for the first time. Yes. Yes. So we get the idea that sorceresses, but not sorcerers, have to go through some sort of physical transformation and that the other girls are finding it quite easy to come up with what they want out of this. And she's sort of struggling with it. Um, the only thing that she knows when he asks her, well, what do you want? Is that she wants to go back to Adern and never be the scared girl she was ever Which again. Which is lovely. Like, I, I really like that as the response to, because obviously people expect her to immediately say, oh, I want to be beautiful and I want to be blah. And, you know, that that isn't her first priority. Again, that was a really good first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Just the idea that, like, she's thinking about what she wants sort of in terms of her life development rather than her I physical appearance. I think it's um, just as a sort of broadly tangential point, I think it's kind of amusing that the enchanter, when we meet him, is the guy from the Green Wing who was a surgeon in the Green Wing. <laughs> 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 it's the long arc of his career. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because that's where we go right exactly. after this as we cut straight to the scene with the enchanter slash Yeah, yeah. I think he both asks us both. That's very He's, medieval. He's literally both, both their enchanter <laughs> and their tailor. And this is where it yes. starts getting a bit rough because he says some not victim yeah. great mirror, stuff to her. Is one of his. Mm -hmm. things. Is that to say? Oh, uh, that's to say. Oh, God Almighty! He says she's a first yeah. draft of what nature intended, and that every girl who he enchants becomes a living work of art, no matter uh, yes. how challenging. Yeah, the clay. he calls himself uh, uh, like the final artist after calling her the first draft. Yes, not yes, great. It takes a decidedly downward turn here forth. <laughs> Yeah, but I do, I do like his ridiculous stance and finger <laughs> click to produce the dress. It's very <laughs> showmanship <laughs> and fake like and yeah. Also, the grey dress that he conjures up for her is really nice. I really <laughs> do like that dress. I like the dress. If he just stuck to fucking tailoring, <laughs> it'd be fine. I was really relieved actually when she walked in there and it's like, oh, okay, she's just trying on dresses. This is yeah. fine. Woo. Um. So enter Tisea. And she sends the enchanter away. I actually did kind of like her line about 
you know, there isn't a person in the world who looks in the mirror and doesn't see a deformity except for us. We remake ourselves on our terms. The world has no say in it. So I think she's not trying to say, like, you specifically need this, Yennefer, because of your disabilities. But, you know, everyone has a negative self-image, but we are the only ones. And still her conclusion is not to rectify issues of self-image, but to change the image. Yeah. And she says to her, she doesn't say imagine the most beautiful one in the world, doesn't say that. She says imagine the most powerful one in the world. I mean, this is one of the really shitty truths of the world is that beauty is in fact power and it is there is no um there's no way to argue that yennefer as a visibly disabled woman would have been more powerful somehow um than the you know Mm. incredibly beautiful woman that she becomes because that is the way that the world works but Mm -hmm. the purpose of stories is to try and come up with worlds that don't yet exist and mm-hmm. it would be it would have been interesting to explore a world where that was challenged instead of the just fundamental basic assumption that all able people have which is that given the option any disabled person would get rid of their disability yeah yeah which is a fundamental assumption that isn't true mm-hmm. and um and it's not something that, as a society, we ever, ever talk about because it doesn't fit any of the narratives that people yeah. like to hear. And, and I think it's also worth saying that, like, you know, um, the, the, the absolute most charitable way that you can interpret this situation, like this scene, is, uh, as you say, that, like, um, this is a world that has the same failing in that regard as ours, uh, that beauty is power, as you say. Um, and that, how do you put this, that Tisea has taken the very, very, very initial first step in providing uh, the sorceresses she trains a way out of that conundrum, and then, like, by, by like, acknowledging that, like, you know, uh, everybody has, everyone has these self-image issues, um, we can remake ourselves on our terms. And then immediately going on to, you know, like reinforce that in terms of what you should want to remake yourself into is not disabled. I mean, that's the thing. The the woman is... I will never judge a woman for operating within Mm -hmm. the rules of the world that we live in. So, you know, it's not a judgment on Yennefer herself for choosing this, because that is very much the world and the hand that she was dealt Uh, none of my criticisms about the way that the story unfolds are about her having a moral failing in doing this um it is a it's the the problem is that there it, it was a real opportunity to show that power comes in a lot of different forms and to develop a, a new way of looking at femininity at uh womanhood at at sexuality at power at all kinds of things in a way that shifts um not just the perceptions of that world but the perceptions of this world it would have been for something as huge as the witcher it would have been an incredibly powerful type of representation had they taken it in a slightly different direction but when to say starts talking about the victim in the mirror then that is Unfortunately, the very clear sign of where this is going, the, the again, this idea that yeah. a disabled person is inherently a victim, 
by definition. She also mentions, you know, imagine the most powerful woman, the strength of her posture, the poise of her entire being. Yeah, yeah, yeah that first line. Not subtle. <laughs> she is basically trying to, like, you know, yeah, like, not, exactly. not, not, like, like, I think not consciously, but she is reinforcing uh, within Yennefer the belief that, like, this is your failure. Yeah. Power is directly linked to beauty. And there is, that you can't have power in different ways. Like, leaving aside that this is an adaptation and all that, um, like, this could have been one of those stories where the moral is that, even even if you take it that, that this world, uh, the, witch, the world of the Witcher has the same failings as ours in that regard, you can still uh, direct the story from the perspective of Yennefer learns that the assumption that she could only have power through beauty was flawed to begin with. But that is never really yeah. addressed. It's just assumed that yeah. Yeah. that that can't be true. So let's not even bother mm. exploring it. Yeah. So the scene ends with sort of to say giving Jennifer that monologue, and then using thought transference to read Jennifer's mind and show her an image of what she could be. But we don't get to see that. And then it sort of cuts to the next scene, which is Triss trying to talk full test into allowing Geralt to go try to cure the. I think we, we've spoken a lot about how they portray full test in this um in the last couple of episodes because it's across the different yes. media in which you know the witcher's gone they're all very very different portrayals of him like in the books he's quite i think um, if i'm remembering like quite cold calculating and quite cruel but in the games he's put as sort of a flawed but wise general and a strong leader Just have a weird perception of like which monarchs in particular are worthy of praise and which ones aren't like mm. uh, we will discuss this more at length, yes. I'm sure, like some later episode. But like the game's perception of like the political figures of The Witcher deserves like a fucking chapter all in its own. Because every time I like play one of the games and like I'm, I, there's just a conversation with like Foltest or Bradavid or like something that references any one of the other kings or like even Emir of Aragris. Like every every single time I just go, feels like none of you have read the books. You are literally making these characters up. These are new people. These are not the characters. Because, I know yeah, the, the way we first meet Foltest is he's basically Denethor, but th that is the way he looks in this scene, and that's yes. how he acts throughout the episode. He is Denethor. Yeah. So even the book Foltest is supposed to be quite young and attractive, but yeah, show Foltest looks like Denethor. He's like eating with his hands, and he's sweaty, and he's mind. To not... be fair, everyone in the Middle Ages <laughs> eats hands, but. Well, yes, but we didn't. You don't watch yeah, them do it on screen. Yeah, <laughs> our society, our society perceives it as disgusting. So every time it also, book Yennefer makes a point about eating with a fork and knife and teaching <laughs> yes. to do it. <laughs> but yeah, it's the, the conversation. Obviously, they're talking about Triss trying to get full test to let Geralt do his work, and uh, the Striga is referred to as an overgrown abortion. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. There is, it's, I don't know, it's not referred to in the books that I can recall, um, but certainly in the games there is literally a cursed creature which is an overgrown abortion, which is a botchling. Oh wow. Mm. Not to like bring in too much book stuff, this isn't really a spoiler, but the books oh, are yeah. super pro-choice in like, like a pretty respectful way. So... like makes a point of piss, like just pissing off every one of the sensitivities of Polish conservatives in his books that I kind of love. It's, it's like, you can just see that, like, when he was writing this, he was going, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait till they get a hold of this. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So basically full test is just not having it with um, Triss's recommendation that they allow Geralt to go try to cure the Striga and full test tries to kick them all out of the room. But Geralt does a sort of like, oh no, after you, and then shoves the last guard out and bars the door. Like, though, can I just observe that the incompetence of the Temerian royal guard is fucking <laughs> Like, if, if, if Geralt was trying to assassinate Foltus, they he would have been yeah, dead by the amazing. time they got him. Like, it's genuinely worrying if that's how you need Yes. <laughs> so this is where Geralt delivers this uh, monologue, basically, where he notes that Foltus never married and produced an heir. Why is he so invested in curing the Striga? He could in fact, he would, an air, he a would, new air. like, uh, Geralt asks him why not seek to get the monster killed, because if anything, the existence of the Striga adds, adds on to that issue of, like, not producing an heir. Like, Geralt is clearly suspicious of something. Well, he basically does straight up accuse Foltest of being the He, he almost does. He, he basically child. asks the questions, like, who is, he asks the question, who is the father of Ada's child? And that's, and that's when actually a very interesting thing happened. Like, Geralt never explicitly accused Foltest of that, although that was clearly Geralt's suspicion. Foltest basically, just before the guards yeah. burst in, like, says something along the lines of, I heard stories about witchers when I was a child um, uh, about how they were stripped of all emotion, and they must be true, because only, only someone stripped of all emotion could accuse a king of bedding, like, uh, his late sister, like, producing a child or something along those lines. The fact that he went there, even though Geralt didn't specifically yeah, say the it. the first time I watched that, I was like, is this a spe- like, is this just, yeah. like, a very embarrassing, suspiciously specific denial? <laughs> but then, like, on the second, on the second watching, I was <laughs> like, Freudian slip, I think, yeah. no, I think Foltest is actually telling Geralt, um, what Geralt needs to hear. I think, I think Foltest is basically confirming an all but name uh, like in order to like because like I, I think like for whatever reason Foltus didn't want to go ahead and say to Geralt yeah it's actually me well it'd be a hard thing yeah, to admit but he admits it in other words basically yeah but then immediately banishes Geralt from Tamaria. Mind, he does he does so once again very inefficiently because I will I will note that in this episode every time that someone asks Geralt to leave Tamaria they never actually escort him out of the kingdom. They just fucking tell him go <laughs> and then like expect him to actually leave. Like so to be totally honest, I don't <laughs> think Foltest was expecting Geralt to leave here. Well, I mean... I, th- I think I think Foltest was doing a thing here where like he basically was how do you put this? I think I think Foltest was unwilling to in this interpretation of the story, uh, like I think Foltest was unwilling to explicitly like say hire Geralt yeah, go fix this situation, but, like, he's also not pre- doing anything to really prevent Geralt from investigating further. There is a funny line that I've just remembered from the second game. Um, Fulte says, it's the most natural thing in the world for a brother to love his sister. Oh, oh yeah. That's some Jamie Lannister <laughs> yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean about the portrayal of the characters as being different. In this, he's quite sullen and guilty about it, but in the uh, games, he's like, uh, hell yeah, uh, my sister. I, I, the games out of any adaptation of the of the fucking series have like gone the furthest down the road. Yeah. Game of Thronesization. The second game was basically Game of Thrones. It was released around the same time. That's kind of the second one's over. Was definitely theme. very visibly inspired by it. Then let's just put it that way. Yeah, and then we cut to the meeting of the meeting of magicians, as I've called it in my notes. You see 
Stregobor at the same table as Tissaia. You see Artorias Terranova, who's like... Yeah, Artorias is there, and we find out that that is uh, Fringilla's uncle. But what we do get is we get some timeline clues. So they start their conversation by talking about um, how Sintra is hostile to mages and has banned them from their kingdom. And they're talking about King Daggerad, um, which is Calanthe's father, having banned King Fergus, mages. not Emir. Yes, it's like Fergus we've got we've got three rulers of Nilfgaard listed. Yes, Fergus the usurper. It's and clearly like delineated that like where Geralt is right now is happening in the usurper's reign, which is stated earlier in the episode to have happened when the people of Nilfgaard revolted mm-hmm. and toppled their the ruler who was a, a liker yeah. of wine, women, and song, shall we say? And Yennefer's story is happening yes. in King Fergus's time. Yes, and we are seeing that it's happening as the people in Nilfgaard are getting annoyed with Fergus's behaviour because they're talking about Fringilla is supposed to go to Nilfgaard very soon and she will be bringing bread and stability. There was also a really fun thing uh, here where um, in this conversation it's less a timeline and more like a nice hint to the Lord in general. But like where in this conversation it's mentioned Artorius is Fringilla's uncle. Tissaia says something along the line, along the lines of not even all the wine and Toussaint could like cover up all that nepotism. And that's like, I think that's fun because in what we know that Fringilla is from Toussaint. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Stregobor is basically conspiring not to send Fringilla to Nilfgaard, presumably to get on Artorias's good I side. was honestly convinced that he's just doing it to like piss off Tissaia. Yeah, like, I think there is literally no other reason for what anything Stregobor does other than just pissing off women he doesn't like. Yes, that's probably right. So Stregobor uses Yennefer's elven blood against her. He says that Sintra basically hates elves, so sending Yennefer to Adern would be a provocation to Sintra, and that uh, we can't keep having Sintra outside of our sphere of influence because unchecked kings and queens lead to rebellions and massacres. To which Tissaia responds, still afraid of Falca, aren't you? So we it's get this other a little bit of, of an argument, lore. by the way. Like, like, I'm sorry, but like, not even the most ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> obscene, racist cares about, like, who is the advisor to a king of another vaguely allied kingdom whether they have a quarter of elven blood you know like it's Mm -hmm. come on it's it's the argument is so stupid right from the outset like well i suppose i will say in fairness this is so far in the past from when the action takes place that it's only like what like 20 years yeah yeah, but still it's such a distance like you know it's 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 like odds are um, King Dagrad will never even meet Yennefer, like, if she advises only, like, an mm-hmm. ally, but, like, a slightly distant one. It's like, what's the what's the best point of comparison? It's like the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom caring especially whether the spin doctor of the President of Ger- Germany, Turkish blood... But to be fair, if you if what you know of a of a country is that they specifically hate people like you, then you are going to be more likely to advise your person to um, not deal with them. So I can understand why he would be 
concerned about an elven advisor if the if like their whole identity is that they really really fucking hate well it it like we also hear for the first time that like Dagorad had anything against elves from Stregobor in this scene, who we sort of know as an all-around shady dude. But we aren't hearing that really for the first time, though, because, I mean, the last episode, we got all this build-up about how Sintra It wasn't Sintra, it was Calanthe and... Calanthe and the Uh, boy Like, it was was specifically in the context of, like... Philavandral's Uprising, which hasn't happened yet in this timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and just in general, like, um... It is the first time we're, like, really hearing about, like, anyone other than, like... Like, like how do you put this? In the, first, in the last episode, we heard about general human slash elven en- enmity, right? And, like, oppression aimed towards the elves. Like, which, you know, is fair. Like, all of this is manifesting, like, as a side effect of that. Um, and we also, like, you know, um, where we, we heard about... Calanthe having essentially suppressed an elven uprising with lots of loss of blood. We know nothing about her father. Like, this is the first time we hear about him. Like... How long ago was Falca's rebellion at this point? Because, like, nothing... Like, I can't keep... A hundred years ago? Aye. Yeah. And then it's 20 years since the Great Cleansing. Um, It's a a little bit of a case of, like... um, Stregobor is like I I though I just feel like Stregobor is clearly constructing an argument that is less based in the reality so much as him really wanting to piss off to say it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the other mages seem to sort of just like go along with it, but God knows what he's. To be totally honest, them, so. nobody really understands sorcerer politics in and or outside of this. <laughs> so, but we basically end with um, the scene with. Um... Artorias saying, you know, I'll stay out of the vote, but, you know, we're going to have a vote on whether or not to send Frangilla to Adairn in Yennefer's place. And then we sort of cut to Yennefer in her room, pretending she's at Adairn already, rehearsing her sort of courtly courtesies, only for the dressmaker enchanter to burst in and accidentally break the news she's going to Nilfgaard by throwing a much more colorful and, dress and immediately her. she of course turns off to to say to ask for what the hell is going on yeah can i just say something about the visual here to say smoking that pipe is some serious like girl gandalf vibes <laughs> and i love it <laughs> uh yeah that that actually that i can see that <laughs> wizard smoking pipes is now probably associated with gandalf so that's probably not even an unintentional the like long ornate pipe and everything as well and i mean just uh, to say as whole thing i kind of as much as she's slightly antagonistic i kind of just love her like, so yeah <laughs> she is just the, the sort of stereotypical ice queen really she, she's not even really like her. antagonistic so much she's just like mean she's not a bad person she just like genuinely reinforces a lot of terrible things when it comes to like how mm-hmm. she Acts as a sort of surrogate mother and such to Yennefer. Well, she does care about Yennefer. Like, yeah, yeah. she clearly cares about her. She's just like quite shit at it. I mean, not all mothers are great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. In that scene in the the council, you know, they refer to they refer to Yennefer specifically as to say as protege, uh, her uh, hunchback protege specifically. Protege. Yeah, because of course yes, I was leaving that bit out. It's Yikes. fucking Stregobor, you know. Yeah. It is fucking Stregobor. Well, that, that's what comes yeah. out in this conversation, isn't it? It's like, twas your blood, you know, Stregobor did divine the rest. 
yeah, yeah. To say I tries to play it cool at first, like I make the decisions, Jennifer. This isn't about anybody else. And she's like, no, you didn't. You got overruled, and you just don't want to. I do really it. like how Jennifer plays herself in that situation. Like she's just like you can see that yeah. like she's now confident enough in herself that she speaks to Taseya basically as an equal. Mm. Yes, she's able to just completely call Taseya on what she's doing, and yeah, you see a lot there that she's confident and that she is unyielding and that she is very able yeah. to read people is this one we jump back to Geralt and to, yeah. to Merian yes uh, my one of my favorite scenes in this episode years into the future lads come on uh... yeah. <laughs> yeah he's at the, the crypt with the guards and Triss comes along and says oh I'm sure you've got some genius trick or some idea to get rid of the guards Rosa Rock <laughs> <Hucks> a Rock <laughs> Oh wait, but we missed we missed Geralt's uh, we missed Geralt's trademark cheesy jokes. You were supposed to leave Tamaria, but come on, these views. <laughs> I don't know why he's so mean in that regard. It's a it's a lovely ruined castle. <laughs> Sitting in the frozen I mean, I'm snow. from Aberdeenshire. Like like ruined castles in the frozen snow is kind of our selling point. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you call Aberdeen the Granite City, Granite being a cold, Sparkly, beautiful, shiny, silvery, <laughs> where Grey goes to die. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, yeah, the, the reason uh, I moved to Scotland is about is about 40% ruined castles in the snow, so... Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I moved away from snow, but... I don't understand Geralt's problem in this regard. <laughs> Clearly, what he really wanted was something like the Metro Center or the Empire State Building. Like he's he's actually a, a modern day city boy who just is really frustrated by all this nature. Wrong space and time. Honestly, to be totally honest, I I can almost see Geralt actually being one of those people who, if he hadn't had to become a Witcher, or like if he ever like actually had the chance to maybe be someone else. Um, He'd become one of those annoying Twitter posters, like with the fucking um, architecture blog uh, Twitter. Yeah. But he just, criticize, <laughs> he like just criticizes anything like that. that is built in a not not sufficiently classical style. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! Don't tell me he's one of those weird. I can't imagine him as one of those like horrible. He's Prince Charles. Like, people who hate modern buildings. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> No, you don't turn Calling me off. Calling Carbuncle. <laughs> he almost certainly would have agreed with that ridiculous proposal by the Trump administration to like ensure that like all buildings are now built in the neoclassical oh, no, style. No, no, no. No, my if I have to imagine Geralt as any kind of influencer, I imagine him like um, if he wasn't a witcher. People keep making jokes about him farming or being like a stable hand because he likes horses so i imagine him as that like tiktok farmer <laughs> if you had to jesus <laughs> Christ, right. no he would legitimately he, he would definitely run a horse ranch that is just a fact so they um they basically just dig around this crickety old castle and find the cursed music yeah. box because there's and, always oh, actually, there's, sinister music boxes. There's some um, timeline stuff for later in the episode that happens when they're walking down the hallway, actually. And um, I quite actually like this <gasps> scene, yes. uh, first off, because they're asking each other questions. Um, Geralt's saying, you know, or Triss is saying to Geralt, what is this girl to you? Why do you care? And then he says, you first. Why help those who won't listen? And they're just, like, completely avoiding answering each other's questions. Obviously, he's dealing with Renfrey trauma and Triss has some 
you know, political sorcerer stuff going on and they won't answer each other. And then she says, I'm not answering questions as part of your brooding charm. And uh, when they're walking down the hallway, this is also where they see the portrait of Foltest and Ada as children. Um, which is important yes. for a scene sort of a little bit later in the, they get the episode. The children later on in the episode. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Like, I thought, I in the Enifer's timeline. Yeah. Yeah. So Geralt tells Triss that Foltest is the father, and then this is where they start sort of looking for clues in Ada's old uh, And that's bedroom. where they find the letters inside the music box. And Geralt very suspiciously sniffs <laughs> the Which turns yeah. out to be the right idea, because we cut next to them going to Ostrid. Like, because the letters, the letter yes. is um, from Queen Sansia, Foltest and Ada's mother, uh, basically, you know, like, mm-hmm. telling the, telling her children, I know what you're doing, please stop. Yes, and telling Ada to have an yeah. abortion. Like, and, and they go to, they go to, to, to Ostrid, um, and it's not immediately apparent why they went to Ostrid, but it becomes apparent in a little bit, because they, they ask, they ask, uh, they show him the letters, and he goes, Wow, yeah, this this could possibly quite easily bring down the crown. Uh, like, he <laughs> says it in such a calm oh, no. voice. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like, um, and he just several hypotheses, like possibly that uh, the relationship might not have been consensual, etc., etc. And mm-hmm. Geralt says, like, you're suggesting that uh, Foltest raped. Ada, and then is going to murder his own child. Cursed, cursed her in order to like you know dispose of the evidence, so to speak. And Ostrid goes, well, kings have done you know more for less. And Geralt goes, hmm, drink, uh, like and, uh, <laughs> really building up yeah. dramatic tension. And and then immediately <laughs> goes, just one problem though, I spelled you on Ada's bed, like it's very Columbo. And we find out. Some creepy things that, frankly, we didn't really need to know about Ostrid. Um, basically, it all comes out that, like, the likely offer of the curse was Ostrid, uh, and that mm-hmm. he refuses to allow it to be, you know, revoked, because then the people will rise up against Voltest after the trigger has killed enough, and, you know, Ostrid will have his revenge and there is some really, really interesting work done here, I think, about um, sort of, again, toxic masculinity and honor culture. Um, because she, Tris says to him, why wouldn't, why didn't you just expose the affair if what you wanted was to hurt Voltest? He's like, no, that would have hurt Ada. But obviously what he's done yeah. is killed Ada and, and, you know, turned her child into a monster. And um, he doesn't see that as hurting Ada because it's kept her reputation and her honor intact. And that's more important to him than her life because she's ruined by Voltest's seed. So this is like kind of about honor killings. I hadn't twigged. It's also about the kind of, it reminded me a lot of the way that we talk about um, specifically murder suicides and when uh, men who have been rejected by uh, their partners especially if they have kids then they like murder the whole family and then kill themselves because they think that that is somehow a because they think they have some kind of ownership over the family and the women involved that they have a right to their affection and that if that affection is going somewhere else then it's uh then they are the they are being betrayed but also because there's a um a belief that other people looking in um, 
that the because to because two men with that kind of worldview reputation and how they're seen is is everything then they kind of expect that to be true of everyone and the idea that you know a, a woman would just want to live her life with her kids and be happy is somehow less important than you know that it often happens when men lose a, a large sum of money like yeah. very rich men they mm. murder their families yeah, and burn like... their houses down because somehow that's better than the shame coming to the family of losing everything yeah yeah you do see that a lot yeah the like killing the wife and kids because they can't bear to yeah. tell them that they've lost the money I can't imagine she'd just want to... Yeah, and just like go and have a, a normal life, that it would be a tough kind of thing, but... Yeah, because he can't ascribe... They can't ascribe any agency to them, and that's what Ostra is doing here. He can't ascribe any agency to Ada, so it's like full test ruined her, full test was nagging her, it's all full test's fault. Mm-hmm. He can't... Even though this is obviously gross and incestuous, he can't understand that maybe she was into it too. And, and it he just did the consensual. obvious thing of, you know, cursing and murdering and everything because that's the obvious he he just did the path that was laid out for him by their actions yeah yeah and he has to make sure he gets revenge on full test for himself and ada in his and sort I think of it's very interesting as well, um, because um is it fair to throw in a, a short story comparison here because i know we're trying to avoid those but like i think it's interesting to compare specifically like how this is played in the short story and in this episode on this particular point like who did the curse and how in the yeah. short story, uh, it's not it's not ultimately clear that it's definitely Ostrid who did it, uh, because in the short story it's said that like Queen Sansia had some sort of uh, minimal magic power as well, and unlike in the episode where we later find out that Ostrid sought out a curse and received it from you know um, uh, essentially an unregistered mage, like in the short story. Uh, it's played as a kind of he just snapped at her in anger, like you know something along the lines of uh, you know I I curse you and your bastard, and um, that is implied to possibly have been the source of the curse that produced the striga. Like so, in the original short story, there's a mm-hmm. there's a lot higher degree of like uh, everyone except Foltest that Ada is like. Their failings were like, they, uh, say, Ostrid's failings, for instance, were more the result of accident than anything else in the short story. Like, while here it's genuinely more mm-hmm. insidious and deliberate, because here he did curse Ada in an attempt, and specifically Ada, in an attempt to see what, uh, just like out of desperation, in an attempt to like, you essentially commit a murder-suicide. Here he here mm-hmm. he deliberately yeah. commits a mur- an honor killing for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that, can we bring up the fact in the game? Yes, this comes up again, um, in the sense that Ada is supposed to be so the. The child who is cured, not the child, she's a, I think she's like 18 or something. She's cured of the curse, um, but then she's due to be married to Radovid, and someone brings the curse out again somehow. Yeah. Um, I think she's supposed to wear protective charms. And yeah, has... in the book they set up that she has to wear a silver necklace, and there's if supposed to be herbs in her room. If you don't follow the procedure, whole, like... it might relapse, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so basically someone sabotage, sabotages her intentionally, and Geralt has the choice of either just killing her because it's always going to be in danger of coming back 
or curing her again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, of course, the ga- the first game being wildly misogynistic and problematic. If you cure her, of course, uh, you have the option of bedding her. Um, oh, nice. Not not to correct something that I genuinely don't like care enough about to defend. But you sleep with Ada, but like Ada the younger, much earlier in the game, like. Oh, is it before that? Oh, it's before yes. you cure her. Oh. oh, so you have a choice to kill her after you fuck yeah. her. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's somehow like it, it genuinely is like that. Yes. That game. <laughs> <laughs> it should pretty much genuinely force your hand the to save her. The first game literally gives you like say. <laughs> several options, like se- several chances to murder women who you've slept with. So. <laughs> Yikes! Oh my God! Nice. <laughs> it's men. The the games are yikes, but we'll get yeah. to that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the scene ends with um, Geralt basically cold cocks Ostrit and sort of as he blacks out. That's the end of the scene, and that brings us to the initiation to the Brotherhood just before the enchantments are to be done. But Yennefer hasn't shown up. Yennefer is so angry that she isn't going to be going to Adern that she's trying to find a way to get around it and doesn't it just seems like she doesn't even realize that she's missed the initiation um and Istrid walks in on her writing uh, a letter trying to convince her human stepfather to acknowledge her as his true-born daughter kind of Loki makes fun of the entire idea. Like, not not meanly, but, like, it, he doesn't yeah. think much of it. And, um, well, he, quite frankly, like, doesn't, um, basically, you know, just goes, the, the, the initiation just happened. Like, it's over. Uh, everyone's gone through their enchantments and stuff. Uh, you're, you've been too late. And Yennefer yeah. tries to convince him to, like, you know, go tell them they lie, he lied. Like, then it... Uh, but like he tells her that like it's already too late, and that like nothing can fix it now, and you know she she flips out at him right like arguably rightly so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he asks her for forgiveness, and yeah, Jennifer flips out at him. Yeah, he's like, well, are you gonna pretend that uh, you weren't spying on me? This, for this is where we, as I said, it becomes clear that he did know and clearly didn't mind that much. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and I think I think it's a very interesting moment mm-hmm. because actually like. Their entire relationship breaks down, like, in the space of two minutes, where they just vent, like, what they really think about each other, but, like, didn't exactly say. Like, you know, like, he he Mm -hmm. basically, like, you know, uh, says to her that, like, victimhood is not really her color, and she says, neither is heroism yours. She she makes fun of his entire, Mm -hmm. like, wanting to be an archaeologist, and honestly, it's a yeah. way, to be honest. Um... Yeah, we see... Mm-hmm. Well, we see how they don't really have a lot of respect for each other's chosen paths. So, Istred says, you know, for, forget about the Brotherhood. You know, I've just gotten a, a seat on the research... A chair on the research council. Um, we can travel the world together. Uh, you know, go see um, all of the, the different ruins. And she says to him that, uh, oh, a lifetime spent holding dustpans... While you dust off a, a ruin, uh, that's slow suicide. Yeah, and he doesn't respect her role either, though, because he, you know, throws back in her face. I was going to Tamaria for you, gossiping at court. That's your fetish, exactly, not mine. Exactly right. Like it, it's uh, it becomes very evident here that like it's actually it's actually this this moment even more makes me makes me wonder like uh, 
this is this is a very interesting moment because like it becomes apparent that like you know despite the you know wizard politics surrounding them there was a feeling of affection but there was and like even trust but there wasn't really a feeling of genuine respect for the other like yeah, i think the moment that breaks me in this scene was when yeah, when he says that he was going to go to Tamaria for her, she says uh, a true man would state his desires. And then he says that, how can I even know my desires when you get off on disguising your own as mine? Yeah. And that Stregobor was right about... Yeah, Stregobor was right is a line. Yeah, yeah. Just... And, and I think it's a very interesting moment, that, that one, because uh, first of all, to be totally honest, I completely mm-hmm. buy Istred when he says that that's what's been happening, because... It is exactly the sort of thing that, like, shall we say, young Yennefer that doesn't yet fully have a healthy grasp on what should be the limits of using her powers, like, would do. Like, you know, essentially, perhaps mm-hmm. not even, like, really, like, realizing the problem with it, manipulating what Istred wants using, well, her actually quite good, you know, what's the best word for it? Psionic abilities? Yes. And I think the other thing is that Istrid is, he isn't understanding the degree of Yennefer's trauma. She says, you know, I will not be lectured to by a man who pimps the world as some romantic adventure. My world is cruel. You enter, you survive, you die. Mm-hmm. He's not understanding oh. what she came from yeah. and why it's so important I, to her. I don't. We don't really get an impression of where Istrid originated mm. from as a what his life was before joining, be- becoming a mm-hmm. mage, but you get the impression that it was not as difficult. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it he mm-hmm. just doesn't project the same degree of past suffering yeah, as a... yeah the first character Fuck does. You, <laughs> um, and I think that like limits his just ability to be a good empathetic partner in that regard by a mm. lot. Yeah. And then, of course, it ends yeah. with him throwing her worst fear back in her face. Quite exactly. a horrible because... way, to be honest. Yeah, because he says... Yeah, it's an unforgivable way. He says to her, you're just angry, you lost your chance to be beautiful. And she says, I want to be powerful. Um, and he says, no amount of power or beauty will ever make you feel worthy of either. But, I mean, that was also him quite clearly saying that yeah. he did not find her beautiful right now yeah which is an incredibly vicious thing to say yeah because someone at the start of their argument you get the impression he's saying forget the enchantments forget everything you as you are let's go let's just go explore the world and then yeah then he just turns that right around at the end this is the thing right like istrid doesn't really love yennefer he just wants to control her in the same way that like a lot of men basically don't really like feel genuine love and respect for the women in their in their lives they just i don't know if that's really true of istrid he is stregobor's apprentice he is stregobor's apprentice that's true like he's he i i don't get the impression that like that like istrid genuinely cares about what yennefer wants he just wants yennefer to himself as a sort of eye candy Mm. and i mean that's part of uh culture that we live in as you say there is this real thread specifically through um cishet relationships where men just largely often don't have a healthy respect for the inner lives of the women that they are spending their lives with they think that this is a tick box in the things i am supposed to have and this person is uh meets these criteria and hasn't yet kicked me out 
So I am mm. now in charge of, of this. The, you see it all the time in specifically when it comes to who yeah. sacrifices yeah. their career for childcare or who sacrifices their career when um, mm-hmm. uh, you need to move away f- somewhere. It is assumed that you will move for the man's job, but not for the woman's. And for a man to do that is considered heroic and unusual rather than an equal thing to do. I think, yeah, I wasn't originally, I wasn't originally anti-Istrid, but I do think, yeah, the point that he was making about like, oh, I was going to go to Tamaria for you. It's like, well, okay, well, good for you. Someone had to go somewhere. Yeah, like he was expecting her to go on, do all this archaeology shit with him just as a matter of, he, he expected her to be content with that. Like, this is exactly that conversation about like, who moves, uh, you know, like for their partner's job, essentially, because like he's he's essentially responding to a genuine crisis she's having in her life, like where all she's dreamed and worked for has now become, well, as it turns out in the end, not impossible, but like much more difficult and unlikely. Like he responds to it with, well, you know, you can be my live-in girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as she did, cause the crisis herself by refusing to go to Nilfgaard and doing the exact opposite of what Taseya told her about controlling her emotions. Yeah, his response should have been, we'll find a way to fix it, not, oh well, you can be my girlfriend. Yeah, like, and you know, I mean, yeah, she caused the crisis a little bit, but then, like, let's be real here, at the end, like, no, so did he, and also nobody wants to go to Nilfgaard. The entire point of the entire series is that nobody wants to go to Nilfgaard. Nilfgaard comes to you, and that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so we end this sort of horrible scene with that that line, that no amount of power or beauty will ever make you feel worthy of either, as she storms out. And the next scene that opens is at the ball that is being held after everyone's initiations and we see Fringilla dancing with King Verferal of uh, Adern and is doing a bad job and Verferal isn't happy. I think we'd already been told earlier in the episode that he prefers mages to come from Adern and that's why Yennefer was supposed to go there because she's from Vengerberg which is the capital of He literally Adern. goes like an Adernian would have known her steps. And then we see uh, Tissaia approach um uh, queen, young Queen Sansia with her the children who are baby Foltestinata basically and of course Foltest's messing with Ada and like playing with her hair. It's, and... it's probably the most yikes way they could have played that it's a little scene. Creepy. I'm not gonna lie. Yep. It's a bit turning of the screw. Then again they, they can't really like you know de-emphasize the fundamental yikesnessness of that entire situation. It's yikes by default. It's an incest story yeah it's gonna be <laughs> And then basically we cut to Yennefer walking in to the Enchanter's fire room and uh, insisting on having the enchantment, A, despite not having been initiated, and B, despite him not having any anesthesia prepared. Um, And it just starts the intercut between the two scenes. To start on a lighter note, um, I I won't name any friends here, but someone I know once told me that they're um, a relative of theirs who happened to be not particularly fiscally um, well endowed at the time went to the dentist for a root canal surgery and as a means of attempting to save money on it um, specifically asked for no pain treatment or anesthesia undergoing it because they figured it might Mm -hmm. save them some money and they got to the end of isn't that well this is the thing they went to the 
I mean, you can have a root canal without anesthesia depending. Like I didn't have any anesthesia on the one root canal I had, but that's because like the nerve was dead. But if the nerve isn't totally dead, that is it a was not. extremely bad. Yeah, idea. I can, the condition that I've got makes um, anest- local anesthesia really um, tricky. And so there's only oh. one type of local anesthetic that I can actually have. And at one point the factory in Italy that makes it burn down. Oh, and so there wasn't any um, available. So I had to have a root canal with no... <laughs> local anesthetic yeah it was not good to tell and said can you reduce my bill because um i did not have any anesthetic wow and uh found out please tell me they did please tell me you didn't go through all that with and it didn't even get any money like like oh my god because anesthesia is free why didn't he ask that first (laughs) first yeah it's part of the especially if it's an nhs dentist it's just part of the like service cost Ugh. Yeah, so that's just so that we, you yeah. know. <laughs> Jesus. Before we get to more grisly. So Ow. Yeah, I'll, I'll cede the floor now. Okay. Right. Yes. So, so Geralt is getting ready to go into the castle to try to cure the Striga, and Foltest and his soldiers are there blocking the gate. Foltest asks Geralt what he intended to do, intends to do, and says that Triss has told him to to trust. Uh, there, there's in fact a moment at the beginning where, like, um, it's initially a whole troop of guards that start and stand in front of the castle gate, and uh, and so um, and they're they've got weapons. So Geralt just like goes like, okay, I know what must be done. Draws his we- draws his sword, and then Foltest appears and goes so quick to violence, yeah. <laughs> like I- yes, that's <laughs> like uh, yeah, and um, uh, yeah. Geralt gives gives Foltest uh, red freeze. Uh, brooch. He says that it's a gift uh, in case he doesn't survive the night, but that in case yeah. he's successful and doesn't survive. Uh, and says, this isn't my first time trying to save a princess who others see as a monster. And when Foltest asks what happened to the princess, he says, I killed her. Which, Foltest seems weirdly fine when he I think, says I think that. because, like, Foltest has chosen to trust Geralt at this point. I think, like, basically yeah. Foltest has, like, is aware that like he doesn't know what Geralt will attempt to do when he goes inside, but this is this is a bit like I think to be honest, this is where it's once again worth quoting the short story that this is based on, because in the short story, uh, Foltest mm-hmm. says at one point to Geralt before he heads in, "I don't know what you're going to do when you're faced with the Striga." And I, I, I won't know until mm-hmm. the morning whether you went in to kill her or save her. Although she, and like, and I'm terrified about this because she's my daughter. But like, but I'm going to trust mm-hmm. you because I think she's suffering. Like, I think, I think while it's not explicitly stated in this, in yes. the TV series here, I'm basically choosing to interpret his seemingly being quite calm about Geralt saying that as you know, operating in the same sort of mentality. Mm. And I think, to be fair, like, as much as I think a bit flippant about it, Geralt looks quite troubled when he says, I killed her, and he's clearly carrying this brooch around. So it, it's not like he's casual about the fact that he yeah, killed her. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, not like, it's not like there's any reason for, for Foltis to just go, yeah, sorry, I'm going to, like, withdraw my permission for you to go in now. Get out of my kingdom. I don't want you to murder her. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So this is where we also get full test finally admitting the affair. Um, and in a quite yucky way, oh, we tried to resist and for all it brightens, love casts a lot I, of shadows. I, I was just like, I'm kind of like angry at this scene for Henry Cavill not having given him like a harsher death glare at that moment than he did. Like Yeah, he should have given him the Stregobor <laughs> death glare. Given him the Stregobor death glare. Cause like yikes. Yeah. Um and we also get another so this, was, this was a moment where I was like, this is a bit Game of Thronesy in a bad way. Yeah. It got a little Game of Thronesy. And then we also get another line of like Witchers Have No Emotions chat where Foltest says to Geralt, I envy you to live and never have to fall in love which just again yikes yeah like okay, yeah sorry dude but like this is not what this is about <laughs> no no i know just like yeah him saying like this is this great forbidden love is just a little lannister for me it's extremely sinister um, i'm just glad that scene doesn't drag on and we proceed into Geralt meeting ostrich who's tied up by the chain in that castle <laughs> In the bedroom. In the bedroom. This is how the first uh, game starts. Like, uh, this is the very first scene of the very first yes. game. Like, like I, I think it was tried to be done as, like... It's shot for shot. As shot for shot as possible, both in the game and in the TV series, because it has become such an iconic scene. It, it, like, mm-hmm. it, in, in the Witcher fandom, like, Geralt using Ostrid as bait is basically a meme for all intents and purposes you know like in the purest <laughs> sense of that word as in something that is like something yeah. that you can mention as a sentence it's a cultural shorthand for anyone who's familiar with the witcher so he's using this bait and also interrogating him as to how to break the curse um he kind of gets the information out of ostrich about how he cursed ada and discovers that he will have to keep the striga out of her crypt until uh dawn um, and this is where we see him drink the elixir. So this is the first time we we see that. Um, that gives him the yeah. Yeah, black eyes. He, this is the yeah. first elixir that Geralt openly drinks in the series, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then we cut to Yennefer with the enchanter again. Yennefer beginning her... And this is where it starts. Session. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Yennefer um, is strapped into the chair and asks the enchanter to leave her eyes and the scars on her wrists. Okay, so this is where she is told that um, the enchantment has a cost to it um, and that in order for her to be reborn, she will bear no more. And then this is where the really rapid intercutting between what is happening to her and what is happening with Geralt mm. and the Striga starts. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I'll cede the floor to so, Fiona and Aaron on this one, I imagine. <laughs> so there are so very, very many layers to what goes wrong here, from my point of view. There is, first of all, there's the obvious issue that the idea that your reproductive capability is a cost to sell for power is um yes um i do want to highlight something from the books here just because this actually makes it worse um this is kind of a choice that the show made so in the books it is basically said that uh both the sort of um transformation of yennefer's hunchback is something that just happens with sorceresses mm-hmm. uh just the 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 length of time uh, spend. sorry sorry uh like uh, the, the the hunchback 
is implied to have been a voluntary, voluntary change. Um, the, uh, the reproductive abilities, though. Yeah, well, there's two different things that are said. There's two different things that are said. In the short stories, when Geralt first meets Yennefer and they're in the bathtub together, he has this internal monologue about how sorceresses are often ugly girls who um, the use of magic, like, over time slowly sort of knits their broken features back together. Um, but then also we get that the use of magic also, for some reason, atrophies the gonads in both males and females. But that's just, that's it. It's just a thing that happens. But then we also, at the end of the, like, last book, we get to say saying something about healing Jennifer's hunchback. Yeah. So we get two different stories. Like, I read them so recently and so close like, together. Um, there's, that... there's something There's something about... I, I can't exactly remember how that passed a bit with Tessia and uh, Ghost. But, like, but, but it, like uh, for, for, the, for the reproductive system, then, yeah, it's, it's literally just said that using magic, uh, like, over time alters your body. Like, and that, and, and like, mm-hmm. loss of fertility is just a very frequent cycle. See, that, that so, is an entirely different to... situation, and that would be an yeah. understandable process exactly. to... Yeah. Uh, for them to have yeah that is a about. mutation that occurs because of yeah constant you're using of magic yeah and you're using major powers and that has a, um a side effect i mean you can you could parallel it to in in disability that you know the difference between taking medication which is contraindicated with pregnancy and the forced sterilization of disabled people which is the thing that was um when this episode when this was released and when people started talking about it it was that that was um a lot of people were talking about aside uh the the two major issues that um disabled people have picked up on were the the rapid cutting between these two scenes and what that implies and the um and the forced sterilization the the the, um Mm -hmm. which even aside from the disability thing that is a that's a very relevant thing for feminism one of the things that people talk about in terms of um you still see front page articles about how very 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 few like maybe i think it's maybe only jacinda in new zealand of the female leaders of countries have children that you sacrifice children for power that you sacrifice children Mm -hmm. for high office because you can't have both if you're a woman and it's I, it's a yeah. real um, but but this idea that you um, this removal of something that is considered as obviously in this in this world um, you've got you know there is a reason that it is the reproductive capability that is being removed as the cost and it is because that is considered the thing that is um, that makes mm-hmm. you a woman. And mm-hmm. there's a whole other world of nightmares yes. associated with that idea that yes. I'm not going to go yeah. into. Um, there's one more thing from the books that I do have to say, or else we're going to get emails because of what I just said. So it's, a, it's said that the vast majority of magic users lose their reproductive ability just as a consequence of using magic, but that some sorceresses don't. And there's like an excerpt from one of Tasea's diaries advocating sterilizing all of the sorceresses. So I assume that's where they got this yeah, from. Yeah, and it's, it's, worth, it's worth noting that the way it's framed in the TV series also, above anything else, creates an accidental plot hole because frankly we know 
already that some magic magic users have children. Like, whereas you're implying that there is some sort of like mm -hmm. you know procedure that removes the ability to have children for all of them, which is just not the case. Um, it's just that some of them accidentally mm -hmm. lose it as a byproduct of like using magic in in vocab. I think in the TV series they try to basically say that it's the ascension which is where the removal of reproductive organs comes from specifically yeah. and it's also in the books it's they mention um that very typically sorceresses would go you know they'd use glamour which is one of the makeups that makes them look astoundingly beautiful um and intentionally make themselves mm -hmm. look you know beautiful whereas male um sorcerers would prefer to make themselves look either you know wise and sort of middle-aged or something like that, because it suits their careers mm -hmm. in the world of The Witcher, for them to be framed in those ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one other thing about that was um, in The Last Wish, like, Geralt does, like, repeatedly say that sorceresses actually aren't that attractive when they're not using glamour, because no family would sacrifice an attractive marriageable daughter. Hmm. So, yeah. He's like, like, oh, her nose is too big, and her eyebrows are uneven, and blah, 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 blah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, back to the cost um, for yes. a wee bit. Yes. The, uh, like uh, leaving aside the reproductive aspect of it, the side one of the things that we tend to talk about a lot in the disability community is the the ways in which we harm ourselves in order to fit in with the abled world. Because um, mm -hmm. there is a lot of things that we have to do in order to like uh, as a as a really simple example um i walk with a stick now um my joints are all fairly unstable and leaning on a stick um can be really bad for my wrists but i have to do it because otherwise there's no way that i get the assistance or the time or the patience that i would need if i wasn't walking with a stick i would be walking really slowly and people get very impatient and shitty with you if you don't have a visible marker for that mm -hmm. so there are but when it comes to things like surgeries particularly for people who have scoliosis or um, disfigurements or any kind of condition which causes a really visible deformity then there is a uh, an expectation that you will submit yourself to surgeries in order to make yourself palatable to the outside world these are largely often not done for reasons of um, pain relief or anything else, any kind of personal gain in terms of uh, your quality of life, other than that people will hopefully treat you less like shit. And so you are submitting yourself to yeah. a... I mean, surgery is always a risk. It always carries massive dangers. And especially when you are reforming spines, you know, you are risking... Um, paralysis, you're risking infection, you're risking death. These are things that people are have traditionally been expected to undergo as uh, as a way of making themselves as like-enabled person as possible, because that is the only way that we will adapt to disabled people is if, they are, if they've shown that they've tried hard enough to be as like us as possible. And it's a really dangerous um, precedent. And there's a number of people now um, who have begun the work of talking about the fact that they have um, that they have chosen to not undergo these surgeries, um, that they have chosen to 
maintain the world uh, their world in which they have found the adaptations which work for them which they in which they are as comfortable as they are going to be and they are not going to put themselves through immense pain and immense physical damage and immense risk just so that other people might not be as awful to them and i mean realistically that rarely is how it works out <laughs> as well because you, you you know these conditions are very rarely in inverted commas cured by these surgeries they're just improved and so you're still dealing with discrimination you're still dealing with people being awful to you just to a slightly lesser extent and but this this expectation that you mm-hmm. are supposed to suffer i mean the the stuff about the going through it without anesthesia as well that's a very much seen as a kind of pain as a moral cost like pain as a um the ability to withstand pain as an indication of moral strength yeah and that's a Mm -hmm. and i think it's really interesting is i think that often comes up in the stories as like in terms of not necessarily always physical pain but like the author doesn't seem to approve of people self-flagellating as a sign of moral rectitude so it's interesting Mm -hmm. the show decided to go with this purifying pain angle that's really interesting antithetical to the yeah because because it is really it's it's one of these things that is so deeply embedded in um specifically in uh in the culture that we live in right now that this idea that you are um that you're weak um if you have pain relief of any kind and that that leads to people enduring literal torture um like literally enduring unmanaged mm-hmm. pain just because uh the the world mm-hmm. around them has made them feel like if you if you do take the pain relief that is available then you are somehow giving in to it and that's a really dangerous message to be reinforcing, particularly in a context like this, when there's so many other terrible messages that are also being reinforced yeah. all in the one scene. Yes. Should we talk about the way it's Jesus. shot? Yeah. Well, you see the streaker going down the corridor with a hunchback at the same time as uh, Yeah is getting. It was entirely shot to draw a very obvious parallel between these two stories i mean it is impossible to uh suggest that it wasn't an intentional directorial choice to link the two cures it felt like directorially it was like look how clever i'm being aesthetically it is very wow holy shit but then any level below that when you actually think about the subtext of it and the meaning of it then as you say there's all of these enormous issues around it and what like it's basically saying disabled people were like Yennefer was a monster who then got cured just like yeah. Estriga is a monster you have these two cured. young women who are being cured of their curse um and who will some who will then become normal and therefore better and it's a it's a really and going through a really traumatic process in order to get to reach that cure, which is uh, harming them. It's it's a really, really horrifying um, demonstration of the idea that is in fantasy. It's in all fantasy. It's not just The Witcher. That disability is a curse. It is always a curse. It is something to be cured, something to be fixed. And it is... Um, it is a really 
this is an unbelievably egregious example of um particularly when it comes to women that a disabled woman is a monster and yes and we get a real yeah. horror movie build up of the striga as well um so you get this scene with um the striga where Geralt leaves Ostrich tied up as bait and yeah, it's almost yeah. like something out of alien with like the tendrils kind of coming down by his face and like so we get this real sense of the striga as like this horrible yeah. monster um she you know she rips his organs out and like sticks blood across the floor but then that's the scene where she starts walking down this the hallway with the hunchback mm-hmm. that's then sort of paralleled to jennifer's hunchback and the mm-hmm. similarities in their screaming it almost takes on the same tone and just like yeah, the, the coming a, back and forth is just it's a very obvious directorial choice to parallel those two because the idea is that at the end of suffering for both yes. awaits well, one of them gets to become a princess one of them becomes yes, hot and... again mm-hmm. yeah <sighs> and it's just it's it's i mean the most charitable interpretation would i suppose be that they're trying to parallel like Geralt, but it's not the the body language of the the monster and the body language of Yennefer is so similar. And even with like when the Strigas yeah, are breaking yeah. out of the chain and yeah. Yennefer's breaking her chains, and yeah, the arching of the back, the the way that they are, yeah, the being sort of grappled yeah. and escaping. The they could have done something. Yeah, they didn't have to include Yen's arc in this. They could have done it with like Geralt's trial of the grasses or something. Yeah, then that would have been interesting because that's him being put through torture yeah. and it's horrible. It would be it would be an interesting parallel that establishes yeah. their similarity as people, like Geralt and Yennefer's, because because that is actually something comparable in that both of them were were transformations that they like. Well, in Yen's yeah. choice, she sort of had a choice to undergo, but like debatable, not really. And in Geralt's case, he mm-hmm. just straight up did it. He was a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been, I think, a better, much better. If they wanted to do some sort of intercut of their horrible experiences that paralleled Yennefer and Geralt, it would have been, yeah, much better if it was his child. Of, or yeah, child that's of a really interesting idea, actually, because that would have removed a significant part of the kind of misogyny of this, which is just like, oh, let's torture women. Yay. It's really mm. great. It would, yeah, it would have had Geralt suffer, mm-hmm. like, three in t- only three in ten people survive yeah. trying the grasses, so it was very much a very case of a lot danger of death for him as so. much as it was for her. And torture, and, yeah. Which I'm told, we're, well, the rumour is we're seeing it in season oh, two. That'll be interesting, man. I wonder who will play young Geralt. Yeah. The, but the rumour is that, like in the that like, part of what's going on in season mm-hmm. two is, like, exploring his background yeah. and, like, uh, what it means cool. to become a witcher and, yeah. <laughs> Folk who thought it would go chronological are going to be <laughs> There is no way to make this chronological. <laughs> the series can't go chronological. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, so it ends with, um, as Fiona points out, after all of this torture and comparing Yennefer to the Striga, um, Geralt has uh, managed to survive there's, the night. There's one thing I want to note here, which I actually think is the most fun thing in the confrontation between Geralt and the Striga. It's the bit where they race each other to her mm-hmm. crypt. Makes me laugh every time. Like, oh, when yes, he literally he tackles sort of, like, her out of the her. side. Like, it's so funny. It's like... <laughs> like... It's an interesting bit of comic relief at the I, end of Anti-Horror. Yeah. One, of, one of the interesting arguments that uh, I was uh, given when I 
first started obviously complaining as did all the other people, all the other disabled people about this particular scene, um, was that uh, when it comes to the Struga and Geralt, then he, when he actually gets hurt by her, it is after she becomes human again. And so that is, it's showing that, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. that she, you know, she wasn't a monster when she was monster. It's like, did you miss the part where she just ripped out a guy's entrails? Like, <laughs> yeah. was that just yeah. somehow not part of your viewing <laughs> experience? And... That's how it goes. Yeah. Well, in the story, what kind of happens is that he, well, first off, he takes a sleeping potion when he gets into the crypt and just sort of has a wee nap. And then uh, when he wakes nice. up from that nap, he doesn't know how many, he's supposed to wait for the cock to crow three times. He doesn't know how many have happened because he slept for too long. Um, so he goes to approach her and he hasn't waited for the cock to crow three times. And so she's still got her claws and yeah. But yeah, what I was gonna, what I was gonna say is like literally also like though that argument doesn't hold water because yes, the problem that's in is the that video game intro it, as well. The issue is that she isn't still yet perfectly human. Like she's still only proceeding out of the last stages of yeah. being a strigger. And you don't mm-hmm. hear the cock crow in the episode anyway, so... Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's... I mean, this is one of the parts where I, I do think it's interesting that they they do go on to talk about her as, you know, registering that this is a massively traumatic thing for her, that it, that she isn't just like, oh, look, I'm now princess, wee! I'm going to run around. Yeah, I know, she's had to be sent to the, the priestesses of Melita. And I think that that's a... a powerful thing that this is uh you know again recognizing trauma that this that these experiences are not wiped out by magical cures and um so again Mm -hmm. like if they just kept it as that storyline then it could have been a really good look at at the effect of um like long-term magic or or uh even just isolation and being feared mm-hmm. it could have been a really good discussion of that but unfortunately mm-hmm. that storyline got subsumed by the comparison yeah, to yeah. Jennifer. um and uh it, it it would have been very much more interesting to delve into some of the more aspects she is basically like like the the princess is basically yeah she's a 14 year old girl but she's also now a feral child like yeah as, she's never yeah. been socialized she doesn't have any support mm-hmm. network she doesn't know what it is to be touched or to be loved or to have any kind of um interaction that isn't violent and that's something worth talking worth about also saying like um, uh, and i think Magnus will but... agree with me here is that this is something mm-hmm. that the first game could have really explored but instead it just didn't oh she's cursed again cure her again cool it's quest finished <laughs> Yeah, so um, moving along. So we leave sort of Geralt bleeding out after he's had his sort of throat almost ripped out by the former Striga. And we cut to the newly transformed Yennefer doing a she's all that walking into the Can I just point out, after you've just had a massive hysterectomy with no anaesthetic, you don't just walk around quite happily. (laughs) Yeah, Yennefer... <laughs> that is to not really fully understand yeah. the concept. Of yeah, and you don't anymore. slink like you can at least <laughs> like she yeah. slinks in when she. Yeah, yeah like the, she. Yeah, they, she seems a little too fine. Magic, a lot of anesthesia, <laughs> <laughs> when even in the books, magic's pretty imperfect. Yes, in that they sense. sure are. Magic was that perfect, and that raised the question of why yeah. did you need an aesthetic to begin with, and it's just. Like, 
the pain. Exactly. This is actually an interesting point exactly. because, like, I don't think it's at any point said in the books that what is essentially magic-based plastic surgery, like that they that all the sorceresses do, actually, you know, is all that painful. Like, it's it's implied to be quite simple to perform. That's interesting. Yeah. And there are actually anesthetic spells. We get them in that sort of long, long, long battle. Right. So Yennefer walks uh, right up to King Verferil, who is clearly very taken with her and uh, offers him a dance, uh, despite Tissaia sort of being displeased and offering to uh, get this misguided girl out Everyone of here. Everyone stares at jealousy. Like, Fringilla and Stregobor and, like, even Sabrina looks a bit pensive, mm-hmm. like... Fringilla and um, Artorias sort of exchanging enraged glares. Honestly, like, it's so funny that the only thing that Sabrina got changed is that she got a massive boob job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not very subtle, um... is it? <laughs> <laughs> Yennefer is dancing with Verferol and it's basically implied she's gotten exactly what she wants. That she'll be going to Aedern and Fringilla is going to get sent to... Nilfgaard. And so from her dance, which she's doing much better than Fringilla did, it cuts to Triss, who is patching Geralt They have up. a bit of a conversation about destiny and all that. Yes, that's yeah. all that life is to you. Yeah, and Geralt's been calling out for Renfrey in his Geralt sleep. is, like, also now very visibly, like, I'm done with this place, give me my money and let me go. Um, and Triss, yeah. like, pulls him out on that a little bit and goes, like, is that all that life is to you, money and monsters? I do want to point out one thing, because this is something I didn't notice until I watched it with the subtitles, and it might just be because my TV's sound is really bad, but did you notice when he's calling out for Renfri in his sleep, it actually does have a voiceover of her saying, people call you a monster too, and you chose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never noticed that until I watched it with the subtitles. So I just wanted to... And it's interesting because those are not that is not a see that is not a line that she said while she was alive. Mm-hmm. Like so, he's. I mean, you know, it also doesn't necessarily need to be that he think like inherently much more than just that he's dreaming of of Renfri saying that. But like, mm-hmm. still, it's interesting. Yeah. Like, and um, Triss gives him a talking to about how like a polite talking to about how there is a vortex of destiny all around us, and you're also part of it and then we cut to siri as if to emphasize oh, no, that i think we need to pick up on one line though because uh, she said there's something out there for you something more something more yeah, is the name yeah. of the final chapter of the second book i think yeah. Yeah. Sword yeah, of Destiny. Yeah, it's the final is the final short story in sword of destiny yeah yeah um he's also uh given oh yeah Renfrey's brooch back oh, so it didn't yes. get yeah, so it didn't get given to... So after she says, that's all life is to monster and monsters and money, he says, that's all it needs to be. Um, and when she says that there's this... You say that's all there is to this life, but there's a vortex of fate around all of us, Geralt, uh, drawing our destinies closer, and then he gives she gives Geralt Renfri's brooch I didn't. Back. I didn't think about that, but also, like, that's actually kind of shitty, because best case scenario, that implies that Triss <laughs> stole the brooch that he had given us a gift. <laughs> <laughs> to Foltest for his daughter, and worst case yeah. scenario, it says that Foltest so- somehow just decided, actually, I don't need your gift after all. Thanks a lot for my yeah. daughter, but you can fuck off now. Like, <laughs> yes, we don't want any memory of this. Leave. Like, and I somehow don't believe that it was the second case, so that implies that Triss stole that from Foltest, <laughs> which is just shitty, really. <laughs> Just unnecessarily cruel. <laughs> like... <laughs> um, but yeah, as you pointed out, Megs, um, she says, yeah, there's something 
out there waiting for you something more which is the title of the last chapter and of, of the course Destiny. That's, that's yeah and it cuts the something more is Cirilla. yes so Cirilla is laying on the ground in the forest and she gets up uh there's crows cawing and she's in a trance-like state drawn to another part of the woods and she, there's this whispering voice yeah it's it, uh, the crow the crow's call it transforms into a whispering of her name coming from the woods mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. She continues onwards towards it, and Dara wakes up as well. He follows her, and uh, Dara trips because he steps on some bones. Uh, like mm-hmm. as as they're approaching the forest, is like as he's trying to run after her, uh, and he goes mm-hmm. like, "What the hell?" And uh, he tries to continue onwards, and he and an, an arrow nearly miss uh, nearly hits him but misses, and then another arrow hits him in the shoulder. Mm-hmm. While mm-hmm. Siri, in a trance and untouched, just continues onwards towards the forest. And uh, episode yeah. ends. Yeah. <sighs> well, that was... It has been a long one. Um, yeah, this episode is all over the place. There's so much good in it. The first half of it, I think, is just great. We get so much character development for Yennefer. And that's something that the showrunner, uh, Lauren Schmidt-Hisrich, has said that was one of her goals for the series, was to give us more... Yennefer than the books do and give us more character development and screen Which, time. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, Yen is always good. Yeah. Um more Yen is yeah, always a good thing. Um but then yeah, it feels like the director really fumbled. Most yeah. of this could is, is stuff that really could have been dealt with by just having a disabled consultant anywhere. And uh yeah. Yeah. it's you know, if you're going to have, I'm, yeah. I'm really hoping that for the next season with the massively increased budget, that they will in fact just find a disabled person to talk to. Maybe one of the ones who's been making this commentary, because the thing is that this is not universally bad representation. There are so many good aspects to it, and that's what made it more sad that it, uh, mm-hmm. the parts where it went wrong, because she could have been this amazing mm. disabled character and it and it did suck yeah. we I mean we all knew as soon as she came on screen like we when when we first saw the screenshots of it you know those of us who didn't play the games or read the books or stuff then um we thought you know maybe we understood that she was always going to be played by enabled actress because that's how this works <laughs> you know you don't get disabled people played by yeah. disabled people and um in the media so we understood that but even then it would have been you know this powerful woman who with these um disfigurements and and disabilities and it it could have been amazing and then but as soon as she came on screen we're like yeah this is you know how this is gonna go yeah lord of the history if you're listening to this hire (laughs) field as your consultant Also quite to your podcasters. And to your consultants, because this is always the other problem with uh, disability consultation, is that people expect us to do it all for free, because they think we are so desperate for decent representation that they just, you know, that they'll just be like, you'll, you're, you'll be so grateful that we're willing to listen to you, that you can come and do this. Which, to be fair, unfortunately, does often turn out to be the case, because, you know, most of us are starving for some kind of representation, and so we'll take it however we can get it but you know it would be really nice if they would show people um that they respect the expertise that consultants have absolutely 
Um, shall we yeah, wrap up there? Yeah, episode four. Is that uh, the banquet episode? Yeah, it is. It's the episode that launched a thousand shows. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, got to thank Fiona for turning up and contributing so much. It's, yeah. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Fiona. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Fiona. Oh, we really appreciate having your insight on the show. Yeah, a lot of stuff that just we hadn't even considered or thought of, or because, you know, how could we with our perspective? Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And thank you for letting me rant about it in some venue other than Twitter. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to Fiona Robertson for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us again next time when we discuss season one, episode four. Our music is Medieval Abstraction by Lucas Perny and Miloslav Kolar. And you can find us on Twitter and Tumblr as at The Witcher Cast. See you next time. Thank you.